Welcome to the Tierra Talk Show's New Groove segment, in which we invite past guests of our show to discuss the latest and greatest with their upcoming projects for film, TV, books, and more. And I'd like to welcome back Disney author Dave Basser to the show. Welcome, Dave. Hi, how are you, Tammy? You know, nice to be back. <laughs> it's great. You know, I just wanted to say the last time we chatted was about your Oswald the Lucky Rabbit book, and we had that big news story, which was another missing Oswald cartoon was found because of your book. Can you talk about that really quickly before we jump, in, jump into your next book? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was really quite uh, uh, an interesting story because uh, there is a gentleman... Uh, Mr. Watanabe uh, in Japan, who is a huge Disney fan. He's 85 years old. And back in 1951, when he was in high school, he purchased a two-minute 16-millimeter uh, cartoon uh, that had a Mickey Mouse title card to it. And it was called Mickey Mouse Speedy. Uh, was the title of the cartoon. And when he looked at it again, he held on to it all these years. When he looked at it again and he had a copy of my book, he realized that it really wasn't Mickey Mouse in the cartoon. It was Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And through reading my book, he was able to surmise he thought that it was the lost neck and neck cartoon. And that's one of the titles we didn't really have a lot on in the book. It was just, uh, you know, a script and a few little bits and pieces that we could pull together. And we had one piece of background art. And anyway, um, a reporter uh, reached out to me from Japan and I authenticated the cartoon as, in fact, a two-minute portion of Neck and Neck. And that was very exciting. And uh, Mr. Watanabe was kind enough to uh, give me permission to use some still images of that cartoon uh, in a revised uh, special edition that's going to come out next year of the Oswald book. That will be fantastic. I was going to ask, did they let you, um, were they able to, to like transfer it to video or just for, you know, preservation? Yeah, so uh, so because uh, Mr. Watanabe is uh, in his mid-80s, uh, he actually donated it to uh, a film archive in Japan for safekeeping, and they actually scanned it and had a QuickTime movie of it that they were able to send to me. Oh, and wow. And because of the QuickTime movie, I was able to watch that and match it up with the script descriptions that we had in uh, the neck and neck chapter in Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, the search for the lost Disney cartoons book. What are the odds? So that's why I was so excited when you when you reached out to me. You said, I have a new book. <laughs> and I was like, well, hey, who knows what can happen with this new book? See, I feel like um, in, in particular for us Disney fans who are very, we, we just really, really like Disney. Um, you, you kind of grab onto topics that probably aren't discussed as often as I think they should be. Because as a kid, I used to go to Walt Disney World and I used to experience the magic of Disney anime and they had a lot of the animators there with their own desks and everything so this was so interesting to 
get a hold of your book and be able to read about the inspiration behind the design of the actual desks themselves and also you know the studio when Walt Disney wanted somebody to really make his studio unique in its style so what was the inspiration like when did you kind of grab hold of this specific topic just to jump in yeah, you know, it was it was really kind of uh, just serendipitous, really, because when I left Disney, they gave me my 1939 Kem Weber animation desk that I had been working on for you know the better part of three decades, wow. and, uh, and and I uh, I had that brought to my uh, home office, and I. Uh, write on this desk. So, in fact, I'm talking to you from my 1939 Chem Weber desk. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I laid the drawing board that I had worked on, you know, creating animation over the years for pictures like Little Mermaid and Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and Lion King and all these pictures that, you know, Fantasia 2000. And so now I laid the desk, uh, the drawing table flat, and I have my computer on it. And I was working on uh, a new book that's actually coming out in June that's uh, The Making of the Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, and yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah, so uh, last year I was working on that manuscript, and I just took a break, and I, I sort of sat back at my desk, and I just started looking at the desk, and, and then I started wondering if anybody had written about the desk uh, or the furniture, and I started doing so. Anyway, long story short, I blew the afternoon. I was supposed to be working on Nightmare. I wound up <laughs> hours of research on Kem Weber and uh, the animation uh, furniture that he designed for the studio. And there really was no, um, uh, there was no book on it. There was no reference. Uh, there was a few mentions here and there uh, that I was able to find, but uh, nothing significant. And I decided I just really wanted to write something about this furniture because to me, when Walt uh, had the huge success with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, uh, after that, he was able to purchase the 51-acre piece of property in Burbank, where the company headquarters are now, and he built uh, this sort of state-of-the-art uh, studio at the time. And Kem Weber, he hired Kem Weber as the chief designer uh, of the whole studio. And and part of the philosophy uh, back in those days uh, uh, with Kem Weber, uh, he was sort of on the leading edge of stream, streamlined modern style. And as an architect, they, they looked at uh, doing projects, what they referred to as holistically. And what that really meant was not only just designing the buildings, but also designing the interiors and all the furnishings that went into the interior. And so I just thought it was, you know, really fascinating. He wound up designing 22 pieces of furniture for the animation department and he also did some one-off pieces and built-ins and things like that. Um, uh, but for the animation department itself, there were 22 pieces of furniture. And I don't believe some of those have survived, uh, but I was able to aggregate all of this information into one book. I actually, I have to tell you, Tammy, I, I've told a number of people this, and I'll tell you and your audience, I really wrote this as a love letter to the furniture. 
it was <laughs> I love it though <laughs> it's notable spent, you know what I mean yeah, like it's something but, that would stick out yeah and I, I had spent so many years working on this desk and it had such meaning to me uh, it was really you know my way of uh, of just sort of expressing that and, and you've had a chance to read it uh, and go through the book mm-hmm. um, and you know I went out and I talked to a lot of friends of mine um, people like Andreas Deja and Don Hahn and um, uh, James Coleman and John Musker and you know, Jorgen Klubin and all of these folks that they're legends in their own right uh, and uh, you know had worked on this furniture and different aspects, different pieces of the furniture over their careers. And I, I went out and interviewed all these folks and wanted to get a sense from them what it was about this furniture but you know the bottom line is that to create great animated movies you need to have great tools Mm -hmm. and to me the desks were the toolbox it was sort of the foundation of uh of what you needed to create this you know great animated pictures that disney did over the decades and I have a question for you, because I remember when I saw Don Hahn's Waking Sleeping Beauty, um, they discussed how they were kind of kicking out the animation team from the original building. In that time, do you know or do you have any evidence of the actual desks themselves or any other, uh, you know, furniture that they threw out along, you know, along with that because they just said, oh, it's too old. They didn't want to preserve it. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. The, the the first batch of animation desks were made in 1939 and delivered to the studio uh, in December of 1939. And they were all made at a company called the Peterson Showcase and Fixture Company uh, here in Los Angeles. And, uh, and actually, the building where they were manufactured is still there in downtown Los Angeles. It's in a pretty desperate part of the city, uh, but it's still there. And <laughs> And um, uh, so they they made that first batch. And then in the 1950s, they did an expansion of the animation department. They added a bunch of people to do um, Sleeping Beauty. And so there was a whole bunch of uh, sort of a second batch of furniture that was made. Uh, and then in the 60s, when they scaled back the animation department, um, you know, my understanding is that, and I and I got this sort of secondhand from a couple of guys in the operations department at the studio, but they literally had taken some truckloads of desks to the dumper and just got dumped them, got rid of them. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and then uh, as the studio uh, in the 90s, late 90s into the 2000s, started converting over to uh, digital, um, uh, the desks became outdated. They, they had... Uh, run their course at that point and uh, so they started piling up in uh, a warehouse uh, the studio that the company had and so they did a couple of what they called employee sales where uh, employees could purchase the desks and they sold desks for like a hundred dollars which is absolutely amazing to me because of the value Mm -hmm. Um, oh god yeah (laughs) Can you imagine if they kept them? (laughs) And I I can tell you right now that one animation desk sold at a heritage auction probably six months ago, I think, uh, for like $13,000, $14,000. Wow. And and 
one of the pieces of furniture that Weber had uh, uh, designed, uh, he actually did the first prototype in 1929, and by 1935 he was trying to um, make it a, uh, a, a chair that the consumer can purchase in a box, mm -hmm. carry home, and assemble themselves. I mean, he, he, he predated Ikea by eight or nine years. And he couldn't get any traction in 1935 because it was sort of still the depths of the depression mm -hmm. in America. And nobody wanted to take the chance on uh, manufacturing this for the masses. And so you speed forward to 1939. And I thought it was really clever what Weber did as he was doing these concept paintings for what the offices would look like and what the studio buildings would look like. Uh, he had some uh, early concepts for the screening rooms or what we used to refer to as the sweat boxes. And he had these airline chairs lined up as the theater seating as opposed to theater seats. And so Walt apparently purchased uh, 200 of those uh, for the studio. And for a while they were in the screening rooms as seating. Uh, and then eventually they did put in theater seating and those chairs for, for a while, they kind of, the styling fell out of favor and they were in the basement of the animation building. And then uh, I believe in the 70s and early 80s, they started to migrate out of the basement into animators' offices. And so those chairs now regularly sell for eighteen dollars to $22,000. Good and when when a couple of those and and I have to tell you probably 70 or 80 of them have walked away from the studio over the decades because some of them that had gone into uh, auction uh, once once the studio got wind of the fact that I think one of them sold for eighteen thousand dollars in the early 2000s they went around and uh, tagged all of the furniture. And once a year, there's somebody from studio operations who goes and checks on the location of every one of those chairs. So they have a they have an they have an inventory of it, and they know where they are uh, because of the value. It makes me think of that scene in Indiana Jones <laughs> at the very end, where where they have the storage space. That's what I think of where the chairs are now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. But that exactly. would be really cool to see them on display. Have, has Disney ever thought about that? Having like um, one of those uh, type of exhibits that travels the world to show, you know, how the animators basically lived their lives with these desks and created well, these films. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because there's a show going on up at uh, the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, and Don Hahn was one of the curators of the show, and part of that uh, shows a you know typical Disney animator's office set up. The show is about the nine old men, and so they literally have um, a uh, an office set up complete with Weber furniture. And I think that's really neat. They were kind enough to give me permission to uh, use some photographs of that in uh, in my new book, uh, the Cam Weber Mid-Century Furniture Designs for the Disney Studios, which, by the way, 
is shipping out of Amazon and Barnes and Noble on uh, Friday, November 30th. And I have linked it into the show notes below so people can go ahead and purchase it on Amazon. You can also visit Dave's official website where he also has additional information about other books he's done, including this one. And I, you know, I know you've mentioned several different times um, about like on other different podcasts about the you know, having the alcohol, they had the bottles that could fit perfectly in the desk. But two stories I thought were so unique that you were talking about were the Tunnel of Love and the Penthouse. And I never heard of either of them before, like the the backstories behind them. So uh, focusing on Tunnel of Love, I love that you mentioned that um, Walt Disney, there was a rumor that he would try to see if he could, um, you know, <laughs> see if there were any lovers down there and turn on the light. That was an interesting, like, little legend in of itself. So how did you hear about that one in particular? Yeah. Well, you know something? Uh, early on when uh, Walt was designing the studio, I, I mentioned this in the book, uh, there was, uh, you know, one, one of the artists, you know, uh, brought up what happens if it rains, and then they discussed how often it rained in Southern California, and based on that, uh, uh, Walt decided to put this underground tunnel connecting the animation production building with the Inca Paint and Camera building, and so that, uh, you know, the philosophy was obviously to be able to transport artwork even in inclement weather, mm -hmm. but there was also this thought of, you know, keeping climate control over the artwork and and I imagine they probably used it early on, but you know, with the with the really nice climate out here uh it's not that big of a deal in fact when i was working in the pre animation production building back in the 80s on the studio lot um you know we would regularly just carry the artwork out of the building uh, across you know mini drive and into the inca paint building or the camera building or whatever you were doing and um so you know that that tunnel underneath just became a place for storage and whatnot. And, you know, there were, there was uh, stories of some of the uh, animators uh, using uh, cells, pan cells to slide down the ramp to the tunnel. Oh my uh, gosh. Like they were skateboarding and stuff, you know, I mean, just, you know, typical artistic hijinks that go on uh, when you're making a movie, you know, and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's unverified whether Walt actually went down there and flipped the light on a few times, but <laughs> we used to hear stories from the old timers that, you know, there were a lot of little trysts that went on down in that tunnel. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's a good bit of uh, uh, folklore for the studio, I think. <laughs> I just really want to see a movie about that in particular, just on the animators during that time, because it's such it's so romanticized you know what i mean and that we have so many yeah. stories yeah and you know uh there were more than 800 people working on that studio lot uh and so there was a little cross-pollinization that went on between the animators and the ink and paint uh women uh there, there was a lot of uh dating and romance and marriages that came out of it i know uh claude coates i i've been developing a book on claude coates uh, and he met his wife, Evelyn Coates, uh, who was working in the ink and paint department at the studio. So, uh, you know, there's, there's countless stories of that, uh, which I think was really terrific and just, you know, seemed natural, uh, a natural thing to occur. Um, 
and then uh, as far as the penthouse is concerned, the penthouse, for anybody who visits the, uh, the Walt Disney Studio uh, lot in Burbank, uh, the main animation production building does look like a three-story building, but in the center on top uh, of the building is this small penthouse, and they had a lunch counter up there. They had a barber. There was a small gym, uh, and there was a sun deck uh, for the all-over tan uh, that uh, some of the guys used to go for, and um, it was men's only uh, for many, many years. And then in the early 80s, uh, it just became sort of, uh, it was like for senior, uh, senior staff to go up there, uh, regardless of gender. Um, and I know some folks, uh, in fact, I have to tell you, Tammy, I have a little video. I've been doing these one minute, what I'm calling documents. Uh, and I've been posting them on my Facebook page and uh, on LinkedIn uh, and Instagram. And uh, the one that's running right now is actually uh, 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 talking about the penthouse. And there's uh, some images of where it sits and uh, there's some good footage for people to see if they're interested. You know, I, I kind of look at, uh, you know, having worked at the company for well over 30 years, uh, it, you know, there's so many interesting topics, I think, that haven't been covered, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there's things like the furniture, which I find fascinating and actually broadens uh, broadens the appeal of Disney out beyond just, you know, Disney animation fans, but actually out to uh, people who are fans of mid-century design, mm -hmm. people yes. who are fans of furniture and furniture design and all of that. Uh, so it, it, it allows for just a broader audience uh, for some of that material. And, you know, it's interesting, too, that that design period has influenced a lot with, within Disney. Um, oh, you if, can tell from that. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> you know, if you, if you look at some of the contemporary buildings, uh, the, uh, the Team Disney building on the studio lot, uh, the palette of that building cues off of the uh, Ken Weber design buildings uh, with the terracotta, uh, the green, and the beige uh, coloring. Uh, if you look down at Celebration in some of the commercial buildings in Celebration in Orlando, uh, they cue off of mid-century design. Uh, and uh, also uh, at some of the parks, you can see it. And then, you know, when, when we were moved from the animation production building on the studio lot to uh, a warehouse building in Glendale, that would have been 1985-86 that we moved over there. Um, the offices became a little smaller, so the furniture felt big in those spaces. And then uh, when they moved from Glendale to the new animation building that was built uh, by the studio lot, uh, the, the Weber furniture really, some of the pieces became, they were too big to fit in those offices. And it just was a matter of, um, 
you know, uh, the changeover that was happening and uh, the fact that the, co the company was changing from hand-drawn to digital. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's specialized computer desks for people to work at um, uh, doing uh, the digital animation. And, and so, you know, with the Weber animation furniture, I, I, I like the fact that I'm able to repurpose my desk and make it a, a writing desk. Uh, and, and I, I hope that other people will see the value in some of that furniture. And as you pointed out earlier, maybe put more of it on display for people to see. Uh, by the way, I want your audience to know that if they do go to my website, davidbossert.com, there's a tab for free stuff. And under that tab, there's book plates and there's bookmarks. And if anybody's interested in getting their book signed and they're far flung from where I'm going to be, um, they just need to send me a self-addressed stamped envelope and I'll sign a book plate for them that they can then adhere to the inside of their book so they'll have a signed copy of the book if they want it. Well, thank you again for being on the show and, and happy holidays, Dave. <laughs> you too. Happy holidays to you and your audience and uh, I hope everybody has a safe and wonderful holiday season and don't forget, buy books. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I'm putting it in my library. I can't wait to put it in my I Disney think, library. <laughs> if everybody buys these books that not only myself, but my colleagues like Mindy Johnson and, and Don Hahn and uh, Jeff Curdy and all these folks that have been doing fantastic research, Didier Gares, uh, you know, all of this, uh, these wonderful books that come out, they're, they're just uh, shedding more light on something we all love. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I hope I hope people uh, think about books for the holiday season. You guys are preserving our history, and we can't thank you enough as Disney fans. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> it's something absolutely. way amazing, and I think Walt would be super proud with you guys. Yeah, and we all enjoy doing it. You know, we love telling these stories. Mm -hmm.